Yeah, I'm gonna, there's no way I'm gonna forget that, Doc. Um, I have a, God, it's gonna be difficult. Um, I, Christ, sorry. I have a special request. God. Um, last Thursday or Friday, we got news that our middle son in Florida teaches at Ave Maria. He and his wife are going through an awful, awful ordeal. Awful ordeal. They've got five children, um, and right now things don't look good for them. So, um, I'd like to include them in our prayers tonight. And I would like to ask, sorry, everybody, if you would include them in your prayers what are their names? over the next few weeks. Christopher is our son, and Kayla is his wife. They've got five children. I don't want to name them. Just if you would pray, pray for Christopher and Kayla, um, I would they be um, deeply grateful. Is this wine? Yes, this is wine. Sorry, sorry. It was heartbreaking news, and um, I hope um, I hope things will work out. But um, right now, things look dark. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, the gift of yourself to us daily in the Mass. Um, your kingdom that we carry within us every time we receive. You draw us into your kingdom. Um, asking us to pick up our cross, our crosses to bear each other's sins hard thing to do. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Thank you for your presence through the day, for our time here together. I ask a special blessing on, again on our work. Help us to take seriously the, um, the work we're doing together. I'm looking at this work as prophetic. It's modern. We're now in the modern world. Um, not all of it, very little of it is explicitly religious. But so much of it um, um, disrobes us, exposes us, shows us our faults. Give us all the strength to see ourselves in all the characters, particularly those that are most unlikable because they give us images of those sins. We know from Dante, they give us images of those sins that are deep within all of us um, that we so often don't want to look at. Give us the strength to learn, um, to grow in our love of you, to be strengthened by what we see, and to take it out into the world, um, to do as you've asked. Um, ask for a special blessing on Christopher and Kayla in this time of um, an ordeal, a great cross for both of them. Help them to put themselves away, to open themselves to you, um, to return to the um, love that they offered each other when they began their life. Help them to come to the best parts of themselves. 
We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Uh, if I can hold on to things here. Uh, let's do Bert Norton. I may spend, uh, there's a good chance I will come back to this fifth section in Burt Norton because it concludes the, the first poem in the four quartets and it also introduces what will be a, a common concern for all, through, all four quartets. Um, and it's a very difficult, the, the, the themes that he introduces here are, are difficult to grasp so I think what I'll do is, is read it, make a couple of comments, and then I think what I'd like to do is come back to it again next week, um, pick up some passages from each of the sections, the earlier, the first, second, third sections of, the, of Bert Norton, try to put some things together, and then return to this and make a couple of comments on it again to see if we can't put the whole poem together a little bit I was missing you five minutes ago. I'm glad you're here. Um, and try to put the poem together, and then we'll we'll do East Cork. Cork. We've got a um, we we have a newcomer today. Um, oh yeah, sorry. Joan's son is here. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, and then um, I've forgotten you. May, Mary. Mary, if you could enter. Go ahead. Can you? Uh, Daniel Pruitt from Tom and Joan's son. Poor kid. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, where? In school? Out of school? I'm out of school. Did you finish at UD? Mm -hmm. Did you? Uh, I'm taking a break right now. Yeah? yeah? Did you complete the work or are you going back or what? Oh, yeah, I'm, I might go back. Not, we'll not, you not don't know yet? Yeah, it's up Good for you. Listen, don't feel any pressure. I think, I, I'm truly, I believe, I mean, I'm a teacher. I just think kids get on a conveyor belt, and I think it's a mistake. It, it took me forever. I mean, I'm not the best example, but I, uh, people, I think people know I flunked out of college. It took me time. I mean, I've counseled kids forever. And, and I've seen people come back older, you know, women, men and women who were 30 and 40 and thought, good for you. There's a time for things, and, and I wish more kids were doing what you did, so good for you. Mm -hmm. I wish you well. Okay. Have a blessing on your thoughts and everything that's going on with them, truly. Don't feel any pressure. Find yourself, and then go on to do what you're going to do. Um, Our daughter's doing the same thing. Okay, good. And I hope you come back. I hope we see you again. Yeah, thank you. you may not like it, and I'll understand if you don't. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked that, that I keep seeing some of these faces. What, again. He, what he needs is what I did to my son. I got him a job in the swamp, and when I sent him off to college, I gave him a money clip and had imprinted on it, remember the alternative. Anytime, anytime he would call me, the first opening words were, to, for me, Remember the alternative. <laughs> 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 working in the swamps and working with you know, a very difficult environment. But Actually, there's a, a real need to clean out swamps today, but I don't want to get married. <laughs> 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 married. 
traveling and uh, we're empty nesters, so I hope you enjoy it. I'm glad you're here. You have to read all the Faulkner on your own. I, I, I haven't read all the Faulkner. <laughs> and and if, if you come I back, have, if you read some Hemingway. Oh, Hemingway. If you come back, you'll know, you'll know the people to stay away from. <laughs> it's impossible. It's 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 hard to read Faulkner on our own. It's just, and I think everybody here knows it. <laughs> it's extraordinary. It's really, I hope everybody feels that way now. It's extraordinary, but it's just, it's good to go through it with somebody who's read it a lot. You know, it helps. So. Bob, that's what I've been thinking. When Faulkner published his works, did people, ordinary people, just go to the bookstore and buy them and sit down and read them? No, there, I, I don't think any particularly a new, like a new painter, a new musician, good artists always introduce something new. Um, and if, it, if, it's if it's clearly continuous with a tradition, music, poetry, painting, um, people see the, the value of it right away. But when it's not, artists go through terrible times. And, and it's interesting to what happens then, um, how important critics become. And there were a number of literary critics, and it's interesting, most of them were European, who saw the value of Faulkner immediately, who, which means they were good readers. And think about how rare that would be. You know, if you look at most of us, just ordinary readers and the struggles we have with reading. But they saw the value of it right away, and what they did made him immediately popular, particularly in Europe. And there was a period, 10 years after Faulkner wrote, when the world read him and loved him. And then he went out, out of favor for a while, and then he came back. When he did the Nobel Prize and, and as the schools began to make a place for him, he was loved worldwide, I mean, genuinely. And if you know, if you know anything about um, literature, you know that, that people in other countries began to be influenced by what he did, particularly in South America. So, so many writers in other countries learned from him the way he did, say, from Joyce. And then, and it gave them a means of dealing with their culture that their own literature didn't prepare them for. So his influence grow, grew, um, and you know, he's, a, he's an established writer today. Um, it's, it's really interesting and sad. In America, in a politically correct culture, Faulkner doesn't do well. He uses the word nigger. There's so many people who are offended by that. that that they put him on, they censor him, they take him off reading lists. Right. And if you knew anything about Faulkner and you guys have read him, you know that he's in some ways he has more good to say about the black community than the white. Yeah. That they're the hope of America. To, 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 to censor a book because it uses the word nigger is a little bit like wanting to censor Macbeth because a murder takes place. You don't take out things when the artist is trying to show us the way things really are. And it takes a lot of courage to, to experience that. Um, so, okay, let's do um, the fifth section of, of uh, Burt Norton. Remember that for so, for so much of the first part of this poem, Eliot has been, been dealing with those things that are here and not here. Norton was a mansion that was burned down. Um, 
the, the lily pads on the lake, the, the rose petals, the potpourri, the echoes. Remember, echoes are a reflection of something. The potpourri is an interesting paradox in itself because the leaves are dead, but the scent is still living. So in so many of these images, he's making us aware of what I think we can only call this in-between state. Um, and let me put this differently. I've, I've been thinking about this since I've been reading the poem. I, and I'm asking, I don't want to get into it, I don't want a discussion, but think about this. When you receive the Eucharist, when you receive the Eucharist, where are, when any of us do, where are we? Can you locate us in space? If Christ is in an eternal kingdom, yeah, it's in eternity, and he's of the kingdom and we're entering into it, where are we? I just want to throw that out sort of speculatively. I, I missed the first part of the question. Sorry? I missed the first part of the question. I, like, I don't even know what it was. I, <laughs> I don't know. But in, these, in, the, in the quartet, he says, I can only tell you there, but where I can't tell you, because to do that is to place it in time. You know, it's not here, it's not there. Throughout this poem, he keeps using these images to make us aware that even though things seem fixed, in some sense, they're not. And I would say, my guess is that that's very close to what modern physicists have done in their exploration of the atomic world. You know, um, the, the, um, the observer effect and relativity and things like that. So anyway, d through the poem, he's been using images to take us to that place. And if you don't know yet, you will discover that that still point is that intersection between time and the timeless where we encounter Christ. Because oh, it's only in him that those two realms are brought together. Or it's only in him when we're with him that we can share that same state. Is that clear? No? <laughs> it makes sense though. Yeah. Welling, um, yeah. The regular world. Yep. That Let I'm, me. I'm starting my new book. I'm serious here, and the title is "Daily Life to Eternal Life." Yep. And the subtitle is "Eternity: No One Dies, Not Even You." <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah. No. 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 I, I know you are. Here on page three. <laughs> in page three, he at the beginning member of the or the second movement of the second section, and this is on page two, at the still point of the turning world, and he doesn't, he doesn't make a statement about it, it's not predicated, he just gives us the image. <clears throat> Here's that condition in Eliot's terms, so I'm, I'm gonna stop my commentary here, I wanna read and then um, finish the poem. Neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we've been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long for that is to place it in time. Now he will go on, let me just, now, let's go back to section five. We can pick that up together. So this is section five of Bert Norton. 
Remember in section four, um, we got a, a variety of descriptions of the light going out, the sun going down, and what the earth does in response to that when, when things of the earth enter into darkness. And clearly we're meant to think about that for ourselves too. Chill fingers of you be curled down on us. Will all these things happen? After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light, because you know the light flashes off its wings. It's those sort of filmy um, wings that give off a light in return. After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. Section five. Words move, music moves only in time. But that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, not that only, but the coexistence or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. And all is always now, words strain, crack, and sometimes break under the burden, under the tension, slip, slide, perish, decay with imprecision, will not stay in place, will not stay still. Shrieking voices, scolding, mocking, or merely chattering, always assail them. The word in the desert is most attacked by voices of temptation. The crying in the funeral dance, the loud lament of the disconsolate chimera. The detail of the pattern is movement, as in the figure of the ten stairs. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. Timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being, sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick now, here, now, always. Ridiculous, the waste sad time stretching before and after. Just a couple of comments and then I'd like to leave it. And then I, I, I would um, urge you, encourage you, ask you to read this at home. And remember to read it always aloud. Read it to somebody, read it to yourself, but read it aloud. <coughs> Take every one of those images. First of all, remember, I, I mentioned this last week. If you remember from Dante's Commedia, you remember that as Dante was ascending the heavens, he reached that point when he got to the Imperium, at the back of the universe. Plato said, no po in, in Phaedrus, Plato said, no poet has ever reached the back of the universe to show us the universe. Nobody's ever stepped outside of time. Because if you do, how will you find words? Words move in time. I mean, you're in another realm. How do you, how, that was one of the problems Plato had to deal with as a philosopher. Dante did it in the Paradiso. Remember when he gets to the Imperium, he looks back at the center of the world and according to the Ptolemaic scheme, remember the Earth's at the center? According to the physical perception, the Earth is at the center, motionless. And every, every sphere moves around it faster, so that by the time you get to the prima mobile, the, 
the first sphere, the one that imparts motion and everything else, that's the sphere that God uses to give motion to the rest of the world. Um, it's moving so fast you almost can't see it. And, and the tree is imaged as a, or I mean the universe is imaged as a tree whose roots are in eternity. So it's organic, but it, and it's ordered. And remember, every one of the spheres, every one of the um, spheres of the heavenly planets had its own note, its own angelic order, and every, every one of them combined to produce this harmony. You could not hear it with your bodily ears. It was called the music of the spheres. That notion has been with us since Plato's time, since Plato. You could only intellect it. You had to remove yourself from the body in order to hear that. And you can imagine if anybody heard that, how, I mean, how would you describe it? The if we feel a joy at something now that reduces us to tears, that we can't find words to express it, what would our response be to hearing that music, to, to experiencing that, that divine harmony immediately? No mediation in its presence. That was one perspective. When he looked into Beatrice's eyes, and she was looking at the center because her eyes were always on God, we had an inverted perspective. What he saw at the center of the universe was a still point. How else could it be? Because since God is love, love doesn't move. There's no desire in God. Everything he does is in love. It's complete in itself. We have desire. We want to get to an end. We want to go somewhere. We want to get richer or, <laughs> or whatever we do or we want to eat. Or, um, there's no desire. It's complete. So love is the cause of the motion of all other things. Um, desire set in motion by him. Desire in itself is not our end. We don't want to just have that to have that. Desire is only meaningful because it has completion, rest as its end. When I get this, I will be at rest. So all of these images and the notion of a still point are just variations on this theme. And the question is, when we move about our activities in the world, are we aware of that still point? and the harmony that it puts in motion. Okay, now look at, look at the, the, um, the images he uses. Words after speech re reach into silence. If we didn't order our words, would, would they have any intelligibility? Wouldn't they fall off the page in chaos? Every attempt to express something presumes a coherence and an order, otherwise why do it? Right? If, we didn't, if, if our words didn't hold together, they would collapse in, in incoherence, confusion. I sometimes think, even though I struggle to be as coherent as I am, I look out and think, um, what am I aware, what am I not seeing about how unclear I was or something like that? Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness as a Chinese jar still moves perpetually in its stillness. What's on the jar? Leaves growing, a dragon's tail, all, all things in action. And they're caught in the stillness of a form. And he says, not the stillness of the violin. This is not what he's talking about. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts, 
Not that only, but the coexistence or say the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there. How could that be? Only with God. And I hope that's clear because the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end were always there. No matter what we're doing in time, no matter how much things are becoming, our, end was, our beginning was always there with him and our end will be there. So there's this strange paradox that there's something of an end and a beginning to every one of us whether we're aware of it or not. So as, as confusing as it seems, it's actually absolutely faithful to the truth. Or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there. When a person starts, this is sturdy, when a composer starts to create a melody, whether he knows it or not, there's already an end implied or he could never set off to keep struggling to make that whole. You know that from your writing. If you ever sat down to make an essay, you know that you get these insights, these little intuitions. It's like an idea. But you'll never fully grasp what the idea is until you complete the essay and the whole is there. Which means somehow that end was already implicit in that idea when you started. Otherwise, how could you have got there? Or even put it differently, halfway through when you realize that's not what I wanted to say, how do you change your mind and correct it? So there's this paradox that's behind all that we do, that the beginning and the end were always there. And I don't want to get into notions of predestination or just no, no, just because I, I want to get to the stories. He, he says, words strain, cracks sometimes break. You know, shrieking, um, they will not stay in place. We struggle with our language to say, and isn't it true that so often we find that we fail to finally say the deepest things in us? I think we saw it with Benji, that was a good example, who could not find words. And um, Look at the, the, the last section. The detail of the pattern is movement, is in the figure of the 10 stairs. Well, 10 is a perfect number. Stair, there's another example. Stairs in themselves are fixed even while they facilitate movement. Take it away and you couldn't get from here to there. So every one of these, and the dance, stop and think for a second. What twirl, what jump, what gesture can any dancer make that doesn't assume an equipoise? An absolute point of it. What makes it so aesthetic is you watch somebody th through the air and you know that there's a still point or they couldn't perform the dance. Halfway through, they'd collapse. So there's nothing in the world, not any motion, by the, this is Aristotle too, there's not a motion in the world that doesn't imply a still point, the source of motion. You know that when you dance, if you lose your balance, your the gesture fails. And, but when you see a good dancer, you know that something in what he does implies a point of balance, an equipoise, where it could never be completed. So every one of these instances illustrate this sense of what's going on in our universe. That whether we see it or not, there is this intersection between time and eternity. Now let me leave it there. We'll come back again. What I would ask you all to do is read the four quartets through from beginning to end. And then next, next week we'll, we'll take a few minutes and, and we'll come back to this ending and, and I'll see if I can try to pull it together a little bit, but you had a question, go ahead. Well, I got two images uh, about the word and the desert. Uh, I was thinking of the temptation of Christ, and I got an image from that word. Um, 
in the end and the beginning that were always there. Um, that to say that the end precedes the beginning. I got the image of the uh, or all is always now that uh, in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. I just got these, you know, totally different know, know. Uh, images in my head just exploding like that with those two uh, sections. So it, I thought that was interesting. That especially when, since the word is capitalized. Yep. Um. Yep. I mean, the interesting, what you're describing is, if you, it, actually what he's done to me is really remarkable. If you look at the whole poem, the whole poem is trying to take us there when ordinarily our mind doesn't wrap around those, th I mean, those things. We don't, it's not the way we live. So to stay in this poem is asking us to open our minds, open our hearts, um, but in a way, in a way, if you, if you, I mean, if you think about it, every one of these things is true. The stillness of the jar, the still, the still point behind a dance. Take the wheel, the, 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 remember the Dante, the still point. At the center, every, I think most physicists would say, the farther away you get from the center of the wheel, the faster the wheel is, right? The wheel itself is unmoving, geometrically. An intellected point, it does not move. If you took the principle mathematically from the fast movement to the center, you'd get to, a, to a, something like, um, I think, um, the Euclidean point. It has no dimension, no extension. Sorry? The exact center of the wheel doesn't move. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at what he's doing, there's, there's nothing contrary to reason. It's just that, it's, I, I don't know, call it the laziness or the sloth of our mind, the arrogance. He, he's put this all out there, and yet he's done it in such an extraordinarily beautiful way. The pattern, the rhythm, the precision. Um, okay, let's... So, when we begin next week, we'll start with a quiz. <laughs> Didn't I give yours back yet? Yeah. You know what I say to students like you? <laughs> you can only imagine how hard a teacher I was. Um, or maybe still am, I don't know. Okay, let's, let's, let's go back. To, um, I want to do a quick review of Sound of the Fury and then look at these short stories. Um, we're going to have to look at some very, very touchy things here tonight. I think as you all know. Very, very quickly, um, as you know, with Melville and Faulkner, we've entered the modern world, and it's a world without God. Um, we have entered a world that has turned away from God, and we've read two major works that focus on the American character in that way, Moby Dick and Goodell Moses. And we saw um, the response of what I think are two prophetic writers. In Moby Dick, we saw um, Ishmael join Ahab in his quest and come back to show us aspects of Ahab's quest that Ahab himself couldn't see. Um, and I, I've talked about the ironies of some of this. I, I don't, I mean, if I would be surprised if any of you have gone into the depth that I would be expected to as, a, as an English teacher, but. If you read the criticism on Moby Dick, you find that most of them think the book's about Ahab, so it's a tragic work. 
Couldn't be farther from the truth. The whole story is filtered through Ishmael, and if you read Ishmael's chapters, you know that he goes through these peripeteas, these conversions, again and again and again, and the whole thing is absorbed in his perspective, and that perspective is openness to being. He survives that wreck like Jonah to bring something back for us. He's a Jonah figure. And what he brings back is that there's this, this extraordinary beauty and order and intelligibility to nature. Every, remember, all, everything in nature has these analogies. They're all linked. He uses the word linked analogies. Ahab is so obsessed at getting back at what hurt him that he can't let go of wanting to take revenge. And that's a tragic action. But Ishmael is a Jonah figure. He, he coincides, the whole action coincides perfectly with the Jonah story in the Bible. He runs from God. We saw the evidence of that. He's trying to get away. He doesn't know why. Um, he gets cheated when he goes on deck. Um, and then he gets um, practically swallowed by a whale. But he's the only one to survive. So he's Jonah come back to speak to the Ninevites, us. What does he tell us? We've gone through that. Okay. Faulkner picked up the other part of that Old Testament covenant. Ishmael was the outcast one, you remember? He was the product of that union between Abraham and uh, Hagar. Because remember, Sarah, Sarai couldn't have a child, and then she got very envious because a handmaid had her son and threw her out. She was the outcast one. And, and biblically, God says, I will look after him and make him the leader of a nation. And we all know that he's the leader of Islam. And you know how anti-Christian Islam, they, they, they believe Christ is a prophet, not God. Um, um, Faulkner picks up the chosen one, Isaac. So in Melville and Faulkner, we have the two covenants of America, the outcast one and, and the chosen one. And we saw what happened with Isaac and how important Sam Fathers was as a teacher that he teaches them to read in a way the other men don't. And we see consistently through the story that the men don't read very well, typically. Uh, they're, they're, too, they're too given up with the hunt to get, they're, practically, they're so practically motivated to get here that they miss a lot on the way. And Ike learns to read well, and you know that he goes into the uh, commissary and reads the, the journals, and it's there that he discovers the sin of his grandfather and the horror that it, that it presented to him. And um, to, to try to atone for that, he renounces his inheritance, he gives it up. And then has to deal with his revelation at the end that the curse is continuing. So there's no consolation. I mean, I mean, think about how often we have to experience this in our own lives. We think, if I'll only do this, it'll be okay. We still have that reward mentality. If I'll only do this, God will, yeah, I, I'm hoping, did Christ have any consolation on the cross? And he's going to a cross. Um, um, he has no consolation at the end. His wife rejected him. He's got to live with the sin again because wrath has recommitted it and, and he takes that to his old age. So the, the view that we're given of, of America moving forward is a, a very dark one. Jonah coming to tell the Ninevites. Here's the open question that Melville never asks. 
did the Ninevites, I mean, we know from Jonah, the Ninevites repented. The king, what a wonderful story. The king says to the whole kingdom, wear sackcloth. You know, they repented. The serious question to ask is, have we repented after Moby Dick? It's the work of litter, who's going to repent? Um, did Ike's renunciation have an effect on the culture that changed the, you know, but here are two prophet figures. It reminds me of the Jews, you know, speaking to the people and the Jews going on. As Christians, have we, have we learned? I mean, are we doing what God has asked? Or, so we've entered a dark world. Um, and, and now we've continued with Sound of the Fury, and it's given us this very dark view. We've seen it. We, it's an image. It's a story about the collapse of a southern family. In some sense, I think we can say it's a, it's a story of the collapse of the modern American family. What happens when God comes out of the picture? And we saw what happened. It's a, it's a sad, sad story. We also saw at the end that in the Dilsey section um, that, that there is a character um, for whom that's not true. Yeah, she goes to church. She is... Um, bowled over, overwhelmed by the preacher's homily. You remember when the pre and it's an interesting moment because remember, as Faulkner describes it, when the when the preacher begins to preach, the the whole congregation is unified. They can't find words, and and, and it's interesting. They're not searching for words. They are all together, and occasionally there's this voice that goes, "Yes, Jesus," and that, mm, mm, you know, "Yes, Jesus," and they're one. So a whole community is united together in a way that doesn't happen in anything else that goes on in the story. So there's a light at the end of that story for sure. Um, and there's an example of a person who's lived Christ in Dilsey. I mean, if you remember the, the um, sermon, the sermon talks about the mother who patted the child to bed. I mean, those are Dilsey's gestures. Um, very often she calms Benji, tries to put him to sleep, and. So we have an image of a Christ figure in Dilsey and an affirmation, but we're still left with this dark story. And one of the questions I ask, I don't want to get into it, but is, and it's presented in the third person. Um, is that fourth Dilsey section an indictment, a judgment on the other three? Um, and, and remember, the subject of the homily corresponds exactly to what goes on in the family. The, the being trapped in Egypt. America, once again, is a modern Egypt. Um, the, um, all, and, and, and Christ saying, <laughs> I'm not going to overload, I wish I had, I'm not going to overload heaven. The sinners are not going to be there. You know, there's this, this light that comes in the washing of the waves that separates the bad from the good and, and the congregation going, mm, oh Jesus, knowing. Um, and then um, Dilsey's lines towards the end, I've seen the, f I've seen the first and the last. She was there for the beginning, and she was there for the end. And we've seen it fall apart, fall apart. So it's a dark image, but there is a light there. And, 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 and so in some ways, I've, I've suggested that it's prophetic for us. It's showing us an aspect of our modern life. Last week I meant to do this, and I didn't do it. I did it on the Friday group. I, I would encourage you all to listen to the Friday talk on the audio, just because they're never the same anyway. But I remember to do it then. 
and it, it won't tie together as well here because we're going to go on. But I, but I want to I want to do what I didn't do then, um, because it's so relevant to what we're going to do as we move forward. Um, and it's it's curious. I had no idea of, of exactly the content of the retreat that was held this Saturday. Father John Roberts and Father Flynn gave a retreat on um, the, the call to evangelize in the, in the church. Um, and I looked over some of the passages that, that Father John Robert gave in that um, handout. And it's just, it's just what, a, what a coincidence and timing. Here was what I wanted to put to you guys at the beginning of last class. And, because it's going to speak to all the literature that's covered up. And it's actually the one reason why I'm adding Revelation, because something happens in O'Connor's Revelation that, as a matter of fact, answers this question. But we have to wait. You're going to have to wait to read it to find out. Here's my question. Um, when you look at the Compson family, this is troubling. And even the family in Why I Live at the Post Office, or Petrified Man. But let's stay with Sound of the Fury for just a second. When you look at that family, um, where was the father setting boundaries, correcting his wife? Seriously. In Petrified Man, you're going to have the women saying, he can't do nothing with me. I mean, the wives made a, a matter of pride that they don't listen to their husbands. Where was the father? Where was the husband in Sound of the Fury? Where was the mother? I mean, she's far more present than the husband, and everything about her is pathetic. I mean, it's just, it's sad to watch, and, and it arouses, it seems to me, feelings of frustration, disgust, I mean, whatever feelings. I mean, she's, she's more concerned to feel sorry for herself and have other people do things for her and play a victim than she is to do things herself. Where are the parents? They do all this stuff and the father drinks himself to dead. His response to the problems in the family is suicide. The mother's is um, to take her hot water bottle and <coughs> go to bed. Quentin kills himself in despair. Caddy runs away. Benji's trapped in his desires. We've talked about this, so I'm only repeating what you already know. But here's my question. Where, where was anybody in the family correcting anybody else? Who spoke up? That is, who's evangelizing? To put it sort of bluntly. But let me put it in larger terms. Earl knew about the problem. So did the sheriff. We know from what happens between Earl and um, Jason that Earl has a very fairly good idea of what goes on, the stealing and exactly what goes on. And we know from the sheriff, one of the reasons he doesn't help Jason at the end is because he knows. <coughs> Where was that community? It's as if everybody is so closed in their own worlds. Nobody's going out. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, oh I forgot. I don't, I meant to bring the, the encyclical, I forgot. God, I'll bring it next week. Right at the center of the encyclical, the encyclical is called the joy, the joy of the gospel. The whole call of the church is to get out of, get out of our comfort in the church, to take Christ out where it's not going to be comfortable. One of the central passages is he's, he talks about the, the danger facing ministers because the, the, the bad things that happen in the church can so sour people that they don't go out. The pedophiles are only part of it. 
I mean, we can have priests doing stupid things and get disillusioned about our church and go away. The church is the church. Remember Dante. 90% of the people in hell were Catholic. That would never have been a reason for him to leave the church. Where are the people evangelizing? Where are we? Are we doing? Are we speaking up? Nobody in, nobody in that story says anything to anybody in that family. And at the center of the encyclical, um, Francis' encyclical, he said, we cannot let the private lives of people keep us from going out. Because when we look at the modern world, one of the characteristics we see is people have become more and more isolated and alone and withdrawn into their private lives. If there's any place we can't leave alone, it's, th it's that. Does that mean trample, bulldoze, self-righteous? No, it doesn't. It, it, it means, because the whole, the whole thrust of the encyclical, the joy of the gospel, like the apostles, go out and baptize, go out, bring Christ to the world. You remember their response when they were thrown out of the temple, when, when the Jews, after the resurrection? When they were thrown out, they, they came together and they took a joy in being thrown out. How many of us take a joy when somebody gets really angry at us? You know? So the whole call of the encyclical was to go out, to, to, to take Christ to the world. And clearly, if we're reading this literature um, seriously at all, we can see how desperately it's needed. Nobody in that book said anything to that constant family. That thought partly horrifies me. And that horror continues in the stories that we're going to read tonight because we're back in that same awful world. You know, um, why so does it, why does it horrify you? Because I'm sad to see people left. Well, let, me, let me preface this. Let me start. I, I don't want, I'm, going to, I'm going to stop here, Mark. But um, here's, here's one of the premises. How, how can any of us change if we don't learn to see our sins? how important that is because I, I begin with the assumption that so many of us are, we don't see ourselves very well. That's one reason I think literature is so important, you know that. If we don't see our sins very well, what, what reason is there for doing anything other than what we're doing already and continuing in it? You know, I think, I'm assuming most of us know that when something like that, critical, is said to us, it's painful to hear. We very often don't hear it. So very often we don't risk it. So the, one of the qualities of the modern world that this literature is revealing to us is the sense of isolation. God isn't here in this world. This is, I, I'm assuming, this is our families, our communities. We don't have to go to third world countries to do missionary work. Very often the missionary work that's most needed is in our own families, our own communities. So one of the questions that I would just like to leave, I don't want to go into it in depth, is are we, are we answering this? Francis's call is the, the joy of the gospel. Do we take a joy, or, or are we letting this dark world so <coughs> catch us up that we retreat from it or hide and we participate in the same isolation, the same loneliness? We're asked to go out. I know that's tangential to Sound of the Fury, and I, I told you I get a little bit wary about stepping into that, but I still have to do it, and if it's okay, I want to go on because we've got to get to the stories, okay? But I'd like to leave you with that question seriously and, and keep it with you as we move through these literatures because in all the work that we're reading, modern literature, that's what we're looking for. 
It's us. Moby Dick took us there. Go down Moses took us there. Sound of fear. I'm, I'm beginning to feel prophetic. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me. This is our world. What? Yeah. Anyway, this is our world. Yeah? This is our world. So these artists are prophetic. They're, they've got the courage to enter. I, the, I, I think the extraordinary courage to enter into a darkness like that. And, and not for money. They're not doing it to get paid. They do it because there's something in them so suffering that they have to deal with it and find a meaning or a light in it. Otherwise, why do they do it? Because lots of writers fall off the cliff on this stuff. You know that. I'm sure you know that. I'm sorry I took so long, but I, what I, I, I should have thrown that out last week. I'd like to put that out to you, and I'd like you to keep it with you as we move forward, because we're going to be seeing it again and again and again. Okay. Um, the Fred's question. <laughs> okay. Why I live at the post office and petrified men? Why do I want to go back to a classical view? Because Eudora Welty was steeped in it. It's a writer. So for a moment before we turn to these stories, because I want to just read some lines briefly to get us into the story, I want to offer some thoughts about background thoughts that I think are important to keep in mind when we read them. Um, Eudora Welty was steeped in these things. Um, we can, um, I want you to go back to the work that we did on the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, particularly those two, but e even some of the, the meetings we have going over Plato's cave. Um, remember, if you go back to the Iliad, the, the, at the center of the Iliad is this critique of, of the honor code of men. Two, are, two cultures are at war, east and west. They are killing each other over a matter of honor, of justice. It's a very manly thing. Men are given to that heavily. I'm sure all the women in here know that through lots of painful suffering, I would assume. The Odyssey is a critique. I mean, among other things, it's, it's, a, it's a soldier going home. But in order to return home, he's got to learn to deal with all these archetypes. And if you remember, the greater number of them are feminine. So that one of the things that gets critiqued in the Odyssey is women, the archetype, women figures. And remember that the, the, during the nine and a half years, roughly nine and a half years that Odysseus was away, nine, yeah, nine, nine years, because he, nine and a half years because it starts in the nine and a half, it begins in the ninth and a half year. Nine of those years were spent under the power of women archetypes, these feminine figures. He was on Calypso's island for a year, sorry, eight years. He was with Circe for nine. And if you remember, Cal Cal Calypso is an image of that in woman which is divine. She lives in the umbilical cord that connects the earthly to the eternal. So she images that in woman, the beauty of a woman um, that has a transcendent aspect. And if anybody has any doubts about this, I don't want to get into this because I know this is going to be touchy, touchy going, but if you have any doubts about it, just think about how often women are exploited or used as a means of selling products. 
If you see a car on TV, it's not, it's not uncommon to have a woman in the scene who's very sexy, who's very, or all the cosmetic things that get sold on TV. That the, 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 one of the, probably the most dominant image in any advertising work is the sexuality of a woman because of the power that she has in our work. I hope I'm not overstating that. I don't think I am, but certainly there's a great power to it or, or she wouldn't be used as much as she, would, she is. Calypso is an image of that spiritual presence that's in, in, in a woman's beauty that has a transcendent aspect, something divine. Because we're made in the image of, of, um, of God. Does that mean all women have that kind of beauty? Obviously not. Does that mean all men have the kind of nobility or strength that men have? No. But that's an archetypal image of something in woman. And if you remember from the Odyssey, she's very possessive. She does not want to let go of him. She offers him immortality. She wants to keep him for herself. So we're given an image of something very possessive in woman. It's like saying mine. When the gods come, she objects to it. Circe is an image of that in woman which arouses the animal in man. Remember, she's with, Odysseus is with her for a year, and they have sex. She turns all of the men into swines, i.e. into animals. It's that in woman that awakens the animal. And I'm trusting we all know these things. That, that, that men, as men, struggle with the beauty of a woman and the sexuality that is aroused through them. And that's part of our sexual nature. It's, it's just there. Um, so in the archetypes, we, we have a critique of those things in woman that present a, um, something that Odysseus has to come to terms to before he gets home. If his answer is to kill the woman, get her out of the way, we're back in the Iliad. He's got to go home to his family. And there's no way he's going to get home if he does not learn to come to terms with those things that are deeply feminine. And we see the treacheries of them too, the maidservants, remember. I mean, they use men, they sleep with them, the men. So using, using people, men objectify women, women objectify men. That's one of the things that goes on in those two works. We see it again and again and again. One of the most important um, mythical images of woman that got passed down from classical times and that, that gets picked up by Dante is the Medusa, the Medusa. You remember she's the woman with all the snakes in her hair and when Dante goes through the gates, remember this is halfway through the Inferno, Virgil's his guide and Virgil, it's the only time that I can remember in the whole of, of their time together in the Inferno and the Purgatory where Virgil actually physically takes Dante and turns him around. He says, do not look at her because to look on Medusa is to be turned into stone. Now does that ring a bell tonight? I hope. Yes. Where? Lot's wife. No, I mean in the readings. <laughs> the freak show. That was the first the what? one I thought of. Oh, yeah. yeah. What's his name? Petrified. Mr. Petri. How's he described? Turned into stone. If you look at the women in that barber shop, can you find anything good to say about them? I mean, let's wait to get there. But it's a frightening, frightening story. It's really funny that I've read this because I, I can remember 20 years ago teaching these. I'm being honest now. 20 years ago I laughed at this. Now I look at it. 
it's frightening to see, just frightening to see. The Medusae, remember, um, turns men into stone. And, and Virgil does not let Dante look at her. Because to look at that evil is, what, what, I mean, how do we explain being turned into stone? My interpretation of that act is to see evil, to look at it directly, is, is to turn into stone in the sense that you cannot for a moment, you cannot escape the despair. That's the effect. When to look on evil directly is so frightening that it overcomes you. You despair. And, and remember, that's at the center of the inferno. Dante's got to get past it. One of the other images to keep in mind of women in the, in the classical treatment of our human nature that Dante himself uses again. Remember, halfway up purgatory, the, the only threatening moment that Dante faces in his journey up purgatory was with the siren. And we, we know from the Odyssey what happens to the men when they hear the siren, the beauty, the enchanting beauty. The, there it is again, the enchanting beauty of a woman. That it can so take hold of the men, the men, that it draws them to her, and what's the end result? Skulls on the shoreline. The, score, the, the shoreline is scattered with skulls. Because men did not overcome that temptation. As a matter of fact, Odysseus, and it's whatever we want to say about them, he told the men to tie him to the mast and put plugs in their ears so they didn't hear. Because he, he, he always wants to know. Remember what Virgil's response to that was? It's one of the reasons he hated Homer. Because he thought Homer gave too much importance to wanting to know because it very often cost Odysseus his men. Again and again and again, Virgil shows that for those of you who've done the Aeneid. So halfway up Purgatorio, um, there's that moment when Vir Dante has that dream, he sees the siren, he becomes so taken by her that he can't tear himself away. Think about the addictions in pornography. I mean, you name it, go anywhere you want um, with this, but it's overpowering, and, and the writers, good writers are generally, they don't underestimate it, they don't overlook it, they're looking at it. Eudora Welty's looking at it pretty directly here. So we've got all these ancient um, archetypes in the, in the classical pre-Christian. In the Christian view, we've got an image of Eve in the, in the garden at one with Adam. And there are two views of the, as you know, there's, there's two views of the creation. In one of them, they're created together, and in the other, I think the second one, Adam's created, and then Eve is created out of his rib. So there's two different accounts, and it, and it gives rise to two very different readings of women. In one, she's out of the dust with him. In the other, she's made by his rib, which has led some people to say, and it seems to me there's something compelling in this take seriously, that woman is even nobler, because she wasn't created out of the dust. She came out of the creations of God already. I mean, she was made by God's rib, or by Adam's rib. Anyway, the two of them exist in the, in the garden in harmony. After the fall, the question becomes what happens with Eve and what she does. If you've read Milton's Paradise Lost, and once again we're in a mythic world, but in Paradise Lost, Milton shows Eve to be, um, to be susceptible to her vanity as a woman. I'm not sure, I mean, I, I'm a little bit troubled more than a little bit trouble with Milton, but um, she seems susceptible to her vanity, and Satan can play on that. 
But she also seems to be susceptible to power because he tempts her and says, you'll be like God. So I, I, I don't want to go there because that, is a, that to me is a terribly complex thing. If, if God made man and woman perfect, but clearly tempt, Satan did something with Eve. In Milton's presentation of it, there's a time after the fall when she, is, she succumbs to Satan, when she contemplates a number of things with Adam. Um, she doesn't want to tell him because she doesn't want to lose him. She thinks about um, ending his life, so there's something of a murderess in her. Um, and there's something cunning in the way she does it. So after the fall, at least as Milton presented, there's something cunning that enters a woman that radically changes her from what she was before the fall. So we have Eve as, as imaging God in some way in Eden, and then Eve after, and that scene when God comes to both of them, remember, and he says, uh, um, I can't remember that passage, but he says something about the foot and the stone, the punishment, and, and um, he will wound your, your you can wound your, yeah, I can't remember the words, but you know the passage where he, where he makes it clear that from that point on they will have to labor um, and the, everything they do after that. So that sets in motion all the sexual disorders that have been at the heart of every work that we have read. Iliad, Odyssey, every one of them. And then Mary, who is an image of um, absolute gentleness and obedience, a trust in God that is the means by which Christ is brought into the world. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, she's called the Theotokos, the Theodokos, the, the, the bearer of God. How could a woman bear God? That's one of the great paradoxes. That notion, that notion of a woman given, being given that place and what it does to our image of women um, radically changes what he did. Um, so, We've got these images in the modern world, but I go back to my question. When a culture begins to turn away from Christianity, how much help do men get? How much help do women get from our culture? Are there things going on in our culture that tempt men away from God? Are there things going on in our culture that tempt women away? In what condition are they left when they deny God? And over and over again in these modern works, we're seeing both for both the men and the women. So um, keep those archetypes in mind. Um, one, interesting, one interesting thought, and it came to me a number of times, in why I live at the post office, there's no male figures. In um, Petrified Man, they're all impotent. The women have chased them away. I mean, that's pretty clear if you read the story that men don't exist in that world. The women have got complete control of it. In a couple of the passages, it's, it's clear, it, it's certainly in, uh, yeah, in Petrified Man, but I think there's indications of it in uh, Why I Live at the Post Office. It's a Baptist culture. If you take away a male leader, if you take away a pope, and you take away a male authority, what happens to a culture? I just throw that out to ask to think about it. Because so often we hear today about what goes on in black communities with so many men absent. When you get fathers and husbands out of the picture, what are the... Oh, by the way, how central was that to the Odyssey? 
absolutely at the heart of the Odyssey. Odysseus was away from for 20 years. What happened during that 20 years when there was no man around yeah. to keep all those? God, I'm going to yeah. swear. Vulture. Those G damn idiots. What? Because look what happened. I mean, truly, when you take out a ruler, when you take out a ruler of a community, you take away that authority. What happens to men growing up? You've got a hundred suitors, and what are they doing? Tearing Penelope's house apart. So, in in all of these stories, or I mean, the, at least these two, there are no male leaders. There's no male authority. Not in religious terms, not in cultural terms. And in both worlds, the women are falling apart. These are by women writers. I mean, we're going to be reading. This is not a... Um, so, culturally, there's a number of things going on here that are important for us to just be aware of when we look at, um, at these stories. And remember, again, Plato's cave. Um, what happens if you don't... If there's nothing to help people question the way they live, if nobody's bringing something to them, they're left in that cave to die. And so, in so many of these worlds, we're seeing people trapped in that cave life. Um, I'll give one more. Sorry. Um, we may have to come back to, to look at the stories next week. parable, Father's sermon this week was the wedding feast. I love that parable and I hope its relevance will become clear in a second. If you read that parable closely, Father didn't touch on it um, and I'm not sure why but um, it seems to be really important. You remember the parable when Christ says the king invited everybody to the wedding feast and he sent out his stewards to the invited guests. Invited guests. Who are the invited guests? Israel. Israel. Absolutely Israel. Father, I don't know why. Then it was Israel. Israel. What is it now? Gentiles and everybody. It's, well, it is. Who are the invited guests today? After Israel's refusal. Because the parable makes it clear. Well, anyone. Well, it's anybody, but especially Christians. We're invited. That's, I mean, that's us. We've replaced it. He sends out the stewards for the invited guests, and they don't come. This is the kingdom. This is Christ. They don't come. He sends them out again to the invited guests. What do they do then? They kill them. What does the king do? His father didn't cut. What does the king do? He killed them and destroyed their town. What happened 70 years later? What happened to Jerusalem? Destroyed. Destroyed. Who are the invited guests now after the Jews refuse? Those who know Christ. Who are those who know Christ? Us. So the invitation's given. What happens at the wedding feast itself? The guy comes to the wedding feast and he's not dressed right. And everybody can read this with shock. Why does the king treat him this way? He's not dressed right. He has him bound and he's thrown into Gehenna. That's at least as bad as killing the... In some ways you can say it's worse. He's at the feast. The, the Jews refused. They killed the stewards. The king kills them and destroys the town. At the end, we're left with this guy being 
um, tied up and thrown into Gehenna. What does that mean, not to come in the right clothes? Was it that they were provided and he refused them? That's what I got from, yeah. Yeah, from Father Flynn. Mm -hmm. When you get there, there's this closet and you get to go in and pick a garment. Because <laughs> they have all of them available. But you do not put one on. I don't think... Sorry? We talked about that every Sunday yeah. after Mass. That the, the, the tradition was that when you're invited guests and you go, you are provided a certain type of garment to wear. And you're, and you, and that is your sign of respect. So Let me go past this because I, I want to, because there's a, there's a quality of a legalism here that's. That I want to try to. If we just stay with what's there in the okay. story, okay. and I'm asking you to put away all the. Uh, you've been invited to the feast. This is Christ offering Himself. I'm asking this. So leave aside everything else. That, this question about clothing. If you had come, if you were invited to the feast and you actually came. What should be the disposition of your soul? What should you feel in that moment? Respect and humility. Would respect even begin to get close to what? I'd be honored and awed. I would think it would be, it would be over, overwhelming joy and gratitude. Respect would, I mean, respect's a social thing. This is God having given his life offering. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that without feeling I would be overwhelmed beyond words to be in his presence. What would any of us feel except an infinite joy and gratitude? Now the question is, why, what was with this guy wearing that justified the king tying him up and throwing him into Gehenna? He wasn't ready. Oh, oh, no, worse than that, because he's come. He's going through the motions of being uh, invited. And how many, I mean, how many, in all the works of literature, how often have we been dealing with people who are more concerned with how they appear than who they really are? That was the Pharisees. Huh? That was the Pharisees. Yeah. So I, so I just want to throw that out because, and, and, I'm, and I mean this tonight in terms of a man and a woman. It's a man figure. Um, does it apply equally to women? I believe so. When a woman goes, in, when she's an invited guest, if she goes there, Will she be going for the wrong reasons? All of these women that we're looking at do nothing except out of vanity. They're more concerned about being pretty, appearing to be good. I mean, it's a central theme of Petrified Man. They're far more concerned about looking pretty than being good. If any one of those women had come to the feast, what would happen? I mean, this is, a, I, I'm gonna call it, this is an infernal moment in the story. These are, Dora Welty is showing us infernal conditions. These are the same conditions we saw in Dante's hell. So the parable speaks to this, the tendency of people to care more about the way they appear than what's going on in their hearts. And I, I'm assuming everybody knows this, when we go to receive the sacrament, do we feel the joy or the gratitude that we should feel at that moment for what God is doing for us? So once again, it's not just a world that has left God, that's turned itself away from God. It's a, it's a world that has denied the way God is present in the world. Not an abstraction. It's not a God out there. This is a God who entered our world. I mean, this is the one we know. This is a God who entered our world, took on our sins, loved us that much, asked us to love the same way. Went to a cross, fulfilled justice. He didn't do away with justice, he fulfilled it. 
the great challenge for us, bring justice and love and mercy together. Again and again and again and again. So if we're going to talk about these stories as stories about a world that has turned away from God, what are we seeing? What are these writers showing us? Okay. Let's turn to Leviticus. I want to do this really quickly because I want to get to um, Petrified Man. I don't want to spend any time on this except there is no father. Um, and it's funny. It's actually hilarious. I had a hard time laughing at it this time. It's the first time I've ever struggled reading it because I used to love this story. Um, go, go to the very end. You know that when um, Stella Rondo comes home, sister is so resentful. And, and you tell me, I mean, if anybody sees it differently, please jump in here. It seems to me that sister wants to have everything her own way. She wants to have everybody notice her. She wants to have everybody have everything her own way. When she doesn't get her own way, she pouts. And, and she criticizes and falls. For me, she's the counterpart of Jason. Except this is comic. Jason is in a tragic line. She, and and what, what is she doing? She's telling us a story exactly the way Jason does in order to enlist our sympathies for her. So in terms of, of writing and the perspectives that we get, remember we talked about um, Benji, Quentin, and Jason each had their own mode that we entered into them. Now we've entered into sister's mode and what we get is her habit of telling a story so that everybody will see her as a victim and, and then um, using the, the hardships against her, the, the, the unfairness with which people treat her as a reason for leaving at the end. So let me just jump there just because we don't have time. I want to get to why I live at the, I mean, uh, Petra, if I may. Go to the last page of, uh, so this is after things get so bad that she gets fed up and decides to run away on page eight. Um, and wait, and what are the two, two of the great ironies of the story? What's the irony in the fact that she goes to the post office? What's the irony of that? The setting. By the way, in every book we read, every story we read, the setting is a metaphor for the action of the story itself. I hope that's clear. The setting is a metaphor for that action. Whatever the action is, it's imaged in the setting. In, in, the, in Petrified Man, what's the setting? It's a beauty parlor. Uh, we'll get to the irony of that in a second. Beauty? <laughs> what's the irony of the post office? Well, it's a place of exchange where letters, words are exchanged. Perfect. Yes, right? It's, it's, it's supposed to facilitate communication. Is, does any real communication take place in this family at all? None. And where is she going to run off? And, she, and, she's, and she's going to close it down so her family can't go there. She takes pride on doing it. So keep in mind all the comic ironies here. One is the, the setting. What's the holiday? Fourth of July. Fourth of July. What's the irony? Hmm? Independence Day. Say again. Independence Day. The irony died. Well, go, go ahead. Is she? <laughs> yeah. The irony of that independent—is she really independent? I mean, she's 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 living in an illusion that everybody's mistreating her and doesn't see that almost everything that goes on she has a part in. But she's also counting how many people in the neighborhood are on her side. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just read the end because I want to get the petrified man on page eight. 
cutting off your nose to spite your face, then I says, by where have we been, but you guys are missed it. I said, what does Jason say again and again? I says, I says, I says, I he's always telling a story. What is sister doing? Now she's telling the story to us. With the Jason section, he kept saying, I says, he's always talking as if he's talking to somebody and nobody's there. That to me is an infernal irony. He's, he's caught in such an illusion as if there's somebody there when there nobody is. And the question is, if she's telling us the story, are we implicated in it? Are we going to hear this? Are we going to just go along with her? Cutting off your nose despite your face, then I says, but if you all determined to have no more to do with a U.S. mail, think of this. What will Stella Ronda do now if she wants to tell Mr. Whitaker to come after her? Nobody's thought of that before. Wow, says Stella Ronda. I knew she'd cry. She had a conniption fit right there in the kitchen. It would be interesting to see how long she holds out, I says, and now I'm leaving. Goodbye says Uncle Rondo. Oh, I declare, says Mama, to think that a family of mine should quarrel on the 4th of July, on the day after... People died on this day for our freedoms. The ironies can't get any grimmer. 4th of July, this is the mother, should quarrel on the 4th of July or the day after over Stella Rondo leaving old Mr. Whitaker and having the sweetest little adopted child. It looks like we'd all be glad. Wow. Says Stalarondo and has a fresh conniption fit. It goes on. Turn to the last page. Girl, I says, come help me haul these things down the hill. She's hiring somebody with a, a whack. She's taking. Can you, quick, can you recall the radio? Radio flyer. What? Radio flyer. What else? Just, um, just. I mean, she took almost everything everybody Long wanted. Kitchen clock. Oh, kitchen clock. Took her nine trips in her express wagon. Uncle Rhonda came out on the porch and threw her a nickel. <laughs> He's paid her to help. And that's the last I've laid eyes on any of my family, or my family laid eyes on me for five solid days and nights. Stella Rondo may be telling the most horrible tales in the world about Mr. Whitaker, but I haven't heard them as I tell everybody. I draw my own conclusion. But oh, I like it here. It's ideal, as I've been saying. You see, I got everything cater-cornered the way I like it. Hear the radio? All the war news? The war is going on. What a, this is Japan. There's a war. There's another irony. In some sense, this is the microscopic explanation of people not... of being so caught up in their own bad that they make no place for good elsewhere. So the context of the post office, the war at large, all the war news, radio, sewing machine, bookends, ironing board, and that great big piano lamp piece. That's what I like. Butter bean vines planted all along the front where the... Here we have an image of modern man wanting his own security and comfort and making it more than anybody else. But here I am, I'll stay, I want the world to know I'm happy. And Estella Rhonda should come to me this minute on bended knees and attempt to explain the incidents of her life. <laughs> The condition for getting along with anybody will be that they have to come on bended knees and ask her forgiveness. How well does she see the world? And we're getting this all from her point of view. So in, um, in, terms, of, in terms of the literary genres that we've been reading, remember now, if, for those of you who've been here, this is what Flannery O'Connor will be 
who we'll be reading shortly, and Dante would call grotesque comedy. It's the comedy that defines the inferno. Because remember, the difference between the inferno and purgatory was everybody in purgatory was in sin. Everybody knew it. There was no difference in that term. Hell and purgatory are full of sinners. The difference was the people in purgatory acknowledge their sins. How many people in the Compton family see their sins, want to see them? How many people in the two stories we're reading, the women that are, want to see their sins? They're all taking them for granted and looking past. So remember, the definition of infernal comedy was people getting exactly what they wanted and what they got was justice. In purgatory, people knew there was something wrong with them and they were grateful for the mercy shown them. And that was the difference between infernal comedy and purgatorial. I would say Moby Dick is, is a, work, a work in purgatorial comedy. It's not a tragic work. The whole format of is Ishmaelian, I mean, he brings us to see that there's another way of seeing things that Ahab doesn't see. That's a work of purgatorial comedy. Go Down Moses is a work of purgatorial comedy. Molly says at the end, print it all in the paper. I want it all in the paper. She wants that story told. Dilsey, purgatorial comedy. I was there, seen the first and the last. There's hope. So infernal comedy is people staying right where they are, not changing, not wanting to see. Purgatorial comedy is coming out of it, knowing that there's a mercy greater than what we deserve. That's what Christ loves. If he came for justice, none of us would be here. Can, can we take a look at Petrified Man? Let me try to outline some things again. I didn't have, I think I may have gotten them all here, I'm not sure. Remember, I, I've always said how important it is that we look at the plot of a thing because it's the plot that gives us the action. Remember, the plot is the sequence of events, the action is the, the underlying movement, what happens. The plot consists of two halves. In the first half, um, Leota has Mrs. Fletcher in her chair and she's telling her about her meeting with Mrs. Pike and um, <laughs> says how much she loves her. She's a joy to be with and glad to be around. She's glad to have these new friends and how happy she is. Um, and the freak show that comes to town, and, and, it, and it's curious because um, if, you look, <laughs> if you look at the freak show and then look at the humans in the beauty shop, I mean, what do you have? One of the things that seems we were invited to see is that there are other freaks outside the freak show and that, that are walking around and aren't aware of it. So the first half is Mrs. Fletcher coming for her monthly or whatever it is, haircut, and Leota talking to her about her new friend and how much she enjoys her. The second half begins with her being furious and hating her friend because she got all the money and she didn't. So she resents her. It's not because she, you know, Leota deserved it or earned it. She's just resentful because somebody else got it and she didn't. So when you put those together, we, we get an action, right? This is the plot. The characters, Leota, Thelma, we don't see much of Selma except for that scene when she comes in and takes a drag off the cigarette and disappears. Um, um, 
So Leota, Thelma, Mrs. Fletcher, Mrs. Pike, Mrs. Montjoy, and Evangeline. Every major character that plays a role in this is a woman. Leota, Thelma, Mrs. Fletcher, Mrs. Pike, Mrs. Do you remember who Mrs. Montjoy is? She's the one who comes into the beauty shop um, in an emergency sense because she knows she's going to go into the hospital and she wants to have her hair done because before she delivers. Um, and um, those are the characters. The, the women as a whole are catty, mean, envious, greedy. Um, they're selfish, they only care for themselves. Um, they use men, I mean keep in mind this title, Petrified Man, the implications of that for the whole story. Um, And we know that, I mean, in one of the grimmest ways in which we can see that in Leota is she says to Mrs. Fletcher, she and Fred have known each other how long? Eight months, only eight months. How did they meet? Backseat of a car. Sex brought them together, now they're married. And in the second part of the story, when she talks about going to the, the fortune teller again, the, for <laughs> the fortune teller told her that Fred would go to, was it with Vicksburg? So she goes home and tells, huh? Yeah, so she goes home and tells her husband, he's got to go to Vicksburg <laughs> and get a job. Um, and, and she says, she's not gonna have it otherwise. And it's during that exchange when, I think it's Mrs. Fletcher who says, these things don't last long. And Leota gets angry to, to, to reinforce the sense that they're not lasting things, that this marriage could end any time. They've been married eight months. And so over and over and over and over again, we, there are these things, they're all treated comically, they're presented comically, but when you look at them, they're, they're ghastly. Um, the setting, what's the irony of the setting? It's a beauty shop. Um, it's supposed to make women more beautiful. I mean, how, how much more ironic can you Dora Welty be? The women are far more concerned about how they look than the way they act. And we see how unkind they are often in the exchanges between the two of them. There's a secondary setting, and it seems to me it's interesting in terms of the story. It's New Orleans. Mrs. Pike is from New Orleans, and it's clear that everybody looks at New Orleans as this place where superstitious things take place. And we know how fascinated Leota is by superstition. She keeps going to a fortune teller as if that's going to determine her life. Think about how many choices she makes. She's more inclined, she will not listen to her husband. She's more inclined to go to a fortune teller and listen to what he has to say before she will listen to what her husband has to say. The influence of the surrounding culture. We're, three magazines are identified. What's the significance? By the way, I hope everybody sees. This is art. It's supposed to mirror reality, but in everything about it, we're reminded of its artfulness. It's in a beauty shop. There are three magazines that the women read. What do they read? Life is like that, Screen Secrets, Starling G-Man Tales. I, I, did you all see this thing? Did you all, did you all see this? I just, I don't, don't take these home because we're gonna pass that over there, Ken Moore. I didn't know what they were, so I went online. 
What does this what does this say about the women and what they're by the way, at the at the center of Saint Francis's encyclical was this warning Pope to the or sorry, Pope Francis, Pope Francis to be on guard against the influences of her culture. This is Plato's cave again of the influences that that are enculturating that shape our lives. What are the three sources of literary influence on these women? What does it say? I'm just Life is like that, screen secrets, starling G-men tales. What does that say? I'd like to hear from you guys, truly. Kind of resigned. Um, I'm not even sure how to... Like a dark cynicism, a resigned cynicism. Life like that. Yeah, like yeah I would say screen secrets. Gossip. Huh? It sounds like infidelity and gossip. Yeah, gossip. Um, gossip. Like anything else? Just anything that you don't want to be ashamed about, so you're not going to tell. Because once it's told, then there's shame. So if you don't tell, you don't have shame. And how much Hollywood is held up? The way it is today, the glam. I mean, think about. It. I mean, when women go through this, when women go through the. Ah, oh, this is just. When women go through the shopping line at stores, they can't go through a line without having tabloids on either side. I know some men are, but the larger, the larger group of shoppers is women. They're constantly bombarded by images of beautiful women, beautiful women, whose lives are falling apart everywhere. Airbrushed beautiful. I don't know what. Hey, what? <laughs> Sorry. Oh. <laughs> and what about um, starling G-men tales? I didn't even know what they were, and I looked this. Huh? Violence. Or manly. T- the, the kind that will save. Well, this is the kind that will save women. And what's the age of women in these? Faint the towels. I mean, they're all. They're all these women who want to be saved, or women who have got a dark side and want to kill men. I guess that's a dagger. <laughs> what, the, the sense, they, I, didn't, I, I remember my, my mom, my, by the way, my mom was a beautician. My mom used to read the Sam Spade, is that, is that what they were called? The, those det- there were all those, what do you call them? The de- black noir, the detective noir Film movies? Noir. Or, Film noir. Huh? Film noir. Film noir. You know the, the the fame fatale and the detective training who always gets beat by the woman and these are the things that feed these women. Um, here, I, I we don't have time. I I'm, I want to leave it to you, but um, the cattiness you can't read a half a dozen lines without coming across them. But just briefly, remember the story is that in the first half, Leota tells Mrs. Fletcher that. They, um, they went to this freak show, and at the show they saw these freaks. Oh, by the way, one of the elements of this story is it's anti-life, anti-men, clearly, they hate men. Repeatedly they say, <laughs> there's that funny line where Mrs. Fletcher says, my husband can't do a thing with me. This is on page three. <coughs> Mrs. Fletcher sat up straight. Mr. Fletcher can't do a thing with me. He can't live a wink at herself in the mirror. Why is she winking? He can't do a thing with me. What's the irony? Why does she wink? What's Mrs. Fletcher's condition? She's pregnant. Leota's <laughs> winking in the mirror. Just, um, 
There's this anti-humanist quality to these women. Whenever they talk about pregnancy, it's always negative as if it interferes with their beauty. Again and again and again, Mrs. Fletcher is embarrassed to admit that she's... And, and there's this disgust of anything human. When they talk about the, the uh, pygmy sh- or the freak show, she, she relates the, the pygmies to um, childbirth, to pregnancy. This is the top of page four. Ah, well, honey, talking, talking about being pregnant and all, you ought to have seen those twins in a bottle. Pregnancy for these women is something like, it's a freakishness. It's something to hide or put away. That's why Mrs. Fletcher is so embarrassed to talk about it. She doesn't want to admit it. So there's an anti-life quality that runs through these discussions so much. But anyway, she describes this, um, this pygmy, this, this little petrified man in, on the bottom of four, and she says, everything he eats gets turned into stone. And then at the end, remember, um, she, they, after they get, lose the first renters, they take Mr. and Mrs. Pike, and it's clear they're not going to last. And um, they're all together, and um, they're looking at this, this Chinchiman magazine, and Mrs. Pike recognizes um, the man that's wanted for $500 for raping four women. That she, she recognizes that it's the man in the show. And she's going to get, um, what is it, $500 for that. And one of the other ironies, what the fortune, what the fortune teller said would happen comes true. She becomes wealthy. Um, her response to it is resentment on page nine. Four women, I guess those women didn't have the faintest notion of the time they'd be worth a hundred and that is the women, these are women who are raped. This is a woman who cares so much more about money than she does about anything that she, that she looks at the women in terms of the money that they're worth now for Mrs. Pike. So over and over and over again we get this image of the cruelty of women who live for themselves. The vanity, um, in some ways, really a meanness. Um, it ends this way. Leota asked the little boy, remember it's Mrs. Pike that she has to watch and she's resentful of that fact because now Mrs. Pike has this money and she says it was next door to me what, as if it's unfair that Mrs. Pike got it and she didn't. You come here to me because the, the boy doesn't do exactly what she wants. Hold on, bottom of page nine. Leota screamed, Billy boy, what are you doing in my purse? I'm just eating these old stale peanuts up. Remember, they've been there from the... And remember, in the opening page, the beauty salon was described as a den. That's the word, if you don't remember. It's, on, it's in the fourth paragraph. Hidden in this den of curling fluid and henna package. It's a den. Well, and her name, Leota, is Leonine, lion-like. Oh, yeah. Leota, yeah. Animal. Good, good. She gets furious at the boy. You come here to me, screamed Leota, recklessly flinging down the comb, which scattered a whole ashtray full of bobby pins and knocked down in a row Coca-Cola bottle. This is the last straw. I caught him, I caught him, giggled, giggled Mrs. Fletcher. I hold him on my lap. You bad boy, bad boy. You, I guess I better learn how to spank little old bad boy. That's her attitude going into her child. Better learn it now. She said, Leota's 11 o'clock customer pushed open the swing door upon Leota, paddling him heartily with the brush. 
while he gave angry but belittling screams which penetrated beyond Booth and filled the whole curious beauty parlor. From everywhere ladies began to get, for everywhere, ladies began to gather around to watch the paddling. Billy Boy kicked both Leota and Mrs. Fletcher as hard as he could. Mrs. Fletcher with her new, her new fixed smile. Why is she smiling? Well, hold off on that question. With her new fixed smile. There, my little man, gasped Leota. You won't be able to sit down for a week if I knew what I was doing. Billy Boy stomped through the group of wild-haired ladies and went out the door but flung back the words, If you're so smart, why ain't you rich? Now, hold on to that image of the Medusa just for a moment. I hate to sort of give it away, but... Why is her smile newly fixed, and how do we understand this ending? Why is she spanking him? And what are boys and prospective child, uh, Mrs. Fletcher is going to have a, a, a new boy, possibly, or I mean a new child, possibly a boy. Um, Mrs. Fletcher, she, she looks, um, Mrs. Fletcher with a new fixed smile. How do we understand what's going on at the end? How do we understand this spanking, and, and how does it relate to the title? And what is Eudora's well? What is Eudora Welty's image of women in this story? Billy Boy is going to end up being petrified himself because he's not treated with love, kindness, understanding, any kind of relational. Yeah. Qualities. Yeah. So you feel so sorry for him. Is the relationship between the Medusa and what's going on here clear? I mean, turning anybody who looks at her into stone. The petrified man raped for women. I mean, if you put that in the context of the story, I, I don't think we're meant to excuse it, but I think Eudora Welty is being very... And she's asking us to put things together and look at something. This is, this is once again, it's infernal comedy. It's like Dante's Hell, except if you remember Dante's Hell, most of the people are men. It's, in, it's interesting, the first figure in Dante's Hell was, uh, first major figure was Francisca, was a woman. Very gracious, very lovely, but damned. Here we're shown in both Why I Live at the Post Office and um, Petrified. By the way, these are two of our most popular short stories. Probably two of the greatest. The, the two novels that she's most known for are Optimus Daughter um, and a novel called, and I love the novel, it's called um, Losing Battles. It's about a family reunion with a woman, a mother, a really good woman at the center of it. And, but think about that title, Losing Battles. She presents a family struggling um, to, to keep its feet and to keep a joy when everything around them is struggling, how, you know, how hard that is in the midst of struggles. We all know that. Anyway, what do we make of this ending? Why are, why are they spanking him? Because he did something wrong? Why are they spanking him then? He, he's Mrs. Pike's son, and they're upset that Mrs. Pike got the money, so they're spanking her son. Isn't the motive for this spanking resentment and anger that they did? How just is that? Are they spanking because there's a justice at issue here? They're venting their anger on this kid and the story is Petrified Man. I mean we're, we're getting a view of women here that can so overwhelm men that it can 
petrify them. Um, huh? Yes, and it's setting up for sure. For sure, we're watching something unfold. Mrs. Fletcher has won over Mrs. Pike. Right. You know she's now. That's why she's got that big smile. Yeah. Say that again, Marcy. Say I'm with. She's got that fixed smile because she's she has won over Mrs. Pike. The the she's beautician told on she's her won about her pregnancy. How? She has beaten her. How? Because she when it started off, Mrs. Well, she Fletcher, lost the money. Right. So she's happy that she lost the money. Plus, plus, uh, Mrs. Fletcher was feeling so bad about being pregnant, and the and fact Mrs. that she Pike told is the on one her. who had said it. So she was feeling oh, oh, better yeah. about herself when this started out, yeah. and at the end, she's it's, the winner. It's just spiteful. Yeah, yeah. Mrs. Yeah, Pike, she's she's Mrs. Pike spite. spread the rumor. I mean, yeah, really. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah the spite Fletcher, doesn't stop here. Right. The one thing that I want she's everybody won. to take, huh? She has won. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, remember what grotesque comedy is. I mean, this this is not tragic. It's not Ahab. Um, when you read this stuff, you think it's silly and laugh. And, but when you look at it seriously, particularly in a modern context, in a world without God and, and what we're looking at here, sound, we just finished Sound of the Fury, and, and you look at this as a den, it's like the cave, an image of the cave. Um, it's, a, it's a horrifying picture of, what's, of things that are going on in men and women in our culture. Um, this stuff happens every day. Well, let me ask this, Fred. Hold it if you can. We need to leave, but I couldn't agree more. But, but in, in that case, how can you justify the comedic treatment of it? Wait, if, if, if there's no hope, then none of us should come away with despair. How could you, Dora Welty, present a, a picture that on the surface is horrible to look at um, in such a comic light? I wonder if the comic aspect doesn't have that reason behind it, that element, um, because there's such an incongruity between the story itself and its comic treatment. And remember what, I keep, sorry, I keep referring to Dante, and I know some of you haven't done it. Remember Dante taught us when he got up to the top of the Inferno, when he kicked Baca's head, and some critics accused him as being Baca itself, and he said, but that's wrong. Um, you have to take pleasure in God's justice. I mean, all these people chose to be there. It's comic to feel sorry for people, or to put it differently, remember, remember, those of you here, the great struggle that Dante had going up, his journey was to learn how to control pity. It was the great danger to him, and, and in that sense for everybody. 
because it's much easier to feel sorry for somebody. Think about sister and the women here who've lost, you know. It's much easier to feel sorry for somebody than to love them. And it's a question of whether we love it, whether we can step back enough to see things as they really are to love them the right way. And if, if that's true, then seeing something bad in a comic light is learning to see it as it is, freed of that element of pity. Remember, in, in tragedy, we, we've talked about one of the emotions that has to get purged, what the two emotions that have to get purged in tragedy are pity and fear. We have, to, we have to go through a tragic action to have those purged before we can see things as they always are. They really are. Sorry, they really are. It's much easier to feel pity for somebody to treat this comically helps us distance ourselves to learn to see things more free of that that emotion, because that emotion is so easy for us to slip into. And I'm, I'm trusting everybody knows that. It's much easier, particularly when something painful happens to us. It, it, our first emotion is we feel sorry for somebody, we feel bad for them. But the, but the question is, in literature, over and over again, do we get stuck there? Because remember, pity is arresting. You can get rest, you can enable. We've gone through this, you can enable. If you get stuck there, you can actually end up doing more harm. Because you further a crime instead of stepping back and answering it. So I think this comic treatment is part of a Christian spirit, a, a classic spirit of to, to distance ourselves from awful kinds of situations so that we can learn to see them better and respond to them in a better way. Does it make people love virtue by being so repulsed by it? Yes. That was the principle of Dante's purgatory. By learning to see the goads and the checks, the good things and the bad things, we learn to want to do better and stay away from bad. Yeah. I don't know when Still Magnolias was written, but this made me think, oh my gosh, everyone in here is like a weezer. And in Still Magnolias, there's only one weezer. And the other five or six ladies that supported each other helped to tame Weezer, who was just a, you know, um, you know I haven't seen it, yeah. Yeah, she was the, the, yeah, that was the Shirley McClay character. She did it very well, but it makes me grateful, you know, that these women make me appreciate the supportive women in that Louisiana beauty shop of Steve Okay. And I wonder if it was written around the same time. I don't know. Um, we're doing three Hemingway next week. Hills Like White Elephant, um, um, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, and The Short, Happy Life of Francis Garfield. Remember what I said about the setting. Can I have your attention? Remember what I said about the setting. The setting is like a metaphor for the action. One of them takes place as a railroad, one of them takes place as a bar, and the other one takes place as an African safari hunt. Why did he choose those for those particular actions? What did, what did they say about what goes on? What is Hemingway helping us to see? What is Eudora asking us to see with the post office and, and um, a beauty shop? Really good artists are, are trying to help us see things a little bit differently, to be more attentive. And are, are we going to do one more for the lake? Oh, sorry. We're gonna, we, yeah. I'll run over. I'll, I'm going to take five minutes. Because there's only two things about it that I want to do. And we have to get out of here. Huh? I said it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of relevant. Go ahead. See if you can, do, if you can be brave. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the person telling the story, the, the father, 
yeah. of the sun. The fact that he keeps losing track of time. And in, in one moment he's, he's the father, and in another moment he's the son. So I mean, it's kind of the beginning and the ending, beginning and the end. And at the end, he's, I think, seeing his mortality in the in that last yeah. uh, scene. And I just thought, to your earlier discussion, it seems kind of relevant. There's one thing I want to I want to I'll, I'll do that in just a few because we can I. I love that story, and I, I, I can get to the heart of it, I think, in five minutes. So I, what I'll do is take five minutes on that. And we'll, but there's something I'd like everybody to see in that story that I'm not sure everybody would. So we'll take five minutes with that when we start. You all have a good week. Thank you. Same to you.